as what some commentators said, and actually not some, a lot of them said this, is that ولا أنا عبد ما عبدتم. It refers to the fact that the Prophet never worshipped idols, and so it's as if he's saying, I never worship what you've worshipped in the in the past and present. But um, again, this goes back to the, the whole debate as to whether this verse is basically talking about the Prophet and those who asked him the question, or you know, far more general than that. Generally, sabab al-nuzul, not necessarily, generally sabab al-nuzul in a legal point will often limit the illah, restrict the illah. But in points of theology, not necessarily so. Over a legal point, it will restrict the applicability of the law, but in, in, in not beyond that. The reason there's this whole issue here, though, is because the debate as to who are these kafirun. You see, that does make a difference in what the verse is talking about. Is it talking about the kafirun, in other words, those who just ask the questions, or the kafirun in a very general sense? Those that have a different way of seeing life and seeing reality, and is it talking about those who live their life Basically, I mean, their do their ibadah, basically as a fabrication of their own whim, tradition, practice, habit, as opposed to those who do their ibadah, disjointed from these sort of subjective elements, or, or disconnected from these subjective elements, or not. All of these are, are implicated. I do not exclude the possibility that the... Qurayshis came to the Prophet and said, you know, why, why are you creating so much division? Why are you creating so many problems? Uh, why don't you say something nice about our idol, about, about our deities, and we'll say something nice about Allah. Why can't we find some common ground? And then this surah was revealed. I don't exclude that possibility, because it doesn't sound staged. Um, and, and even if that is authentic, I don't think it at all restricts the applicability of the, of the ayah or, or the, or the, uh, I mean of the surah or the meaning. My issue is with incremental propositioning and incremental revelation and the whole idea that they come and say, you know, how about one year this, one year that. It just very much feels like the stories of the satanic verses, the, the Gharaniq reports, in which, and it's a genre, it's a, it's a type, it's a style, and when you read enough of them, you get a feel for them, in which the prophet is, is sort of presented as this sort of lost, tormented soul who is longing for some form of acceptance by his people and so on. Quite contrary, I mean, if someone just believes in a message, leave alone a prophet. You believe in a message, you understand that the over certain fundamental points, there's really no grounds for any form of, of, of compromise or, or common ground. And you want to tell me that the Prophet, the Prophet himself, needed to wait for a response from Allah as to what about if we worship some and you worship some? I mean, come on. 
overwhelming report insisted that there is no yet there. Which, by the way, reflects on the whole issue of the authenticity of the Quran. Because you, you know that Arabs, if they didn't have overwhelming reports, they would have corrected it. They have corrected it either into Dinon or, or Al-Din or Dini with the app. If you look in uh, the Arab Quran, no, no one explains it. Al-Hadith uh, have different constructs, if you will, of the Prophet. One in which the, the Prophet is infallible. I mean, just simply makes no mistakes. But they like the, the uh, notion of a suffering Prophet who, despite of the suffering, is sort of, there's demand upon him to overcome his personal feelings and abide by the rigor of the rules. And that's because their attitude towards what they expect of, of, of Muslims is very much like that. Your feelings about anything really don't, doesn't matter. And if you, I mean, even today, if you talk to the Al-Hadith people, basically, even if you're suffering, you sort of, you yield to the religion. The religion doesn't yield to you at all, in any sense. And they like to, to even take that example even to the Prophet. Look, I mean, the Prophet often wished it would be different. But because the rules are rules, he followed. I mean, even someone like Ibn Taymiyyah, who uh, does this, I mean, they, they even do it with, with things as, as significant as the system of belief. You know, they, they report this, this also about so many different things. For example, the, uh, the whole thing about hitting your, your wife, or beating your, your wife, that the prophets initially said, don't hit your wife. And then, because this is what he likes. And then the Quran came and said, no. So the prophet comes and says, you know, I, this is what I would like. I, my own desires was that you don't hit your wife, but what shall I do? God wants something different. And the al-Hadith have many reports like that. In which the prophet wants something else, and then God comes and says, no, this is what you're going to do. And again, it's, it's because it provides the example by which then they basically uh, go to the rest of Muslims and say, you know, you, I know that your life might be miserable because of this law, but it doesn't matter. Look, I mean, even the prophet had to just follow the rules. It's not just a matter of Sufism, because, I mean, we... The, if you take an Usuri, they'll, they'll say, yes, uh, the rules supersede the Prophet. But the notion is that even the Prophet suffers because of the rules. I mean, the Usulis, if they, if you take the Usulis or you take the Sufis, the Sufis, if the, if the rules are causing suffering, they would say, either you do not understand the rule and you need a new realm of consciousness. If the rule is causing suffering, would say the rule is not achieving. There, there is there is a disconnect between the object of the of the law 
and what the law is. And consequently, a new law is required. The Ahlul Hadith would say, if the rule is causing suffering, if the law is causing suffering, then that's because you're not a good Muslim. So, you have to abide. This comes up, I mean, there's so many examples that come up. Eating with the right hand and left hand. Let's say you are left-handed. And this used to be debated. And you want, say, I'm left-handed, I'll write with my left hand. Right? The Sufis would say, this is not, this is the last thing you should think about. That's the attitude of the Sufis. First, purify your soul, perfect your prayer, and so on and so forth. And then, if Allah wills, you, Allah might give you the gift of the right hand. If you consider it a gift. The Usulis would come and say, the law of using the right hand doesn't apply to you. The important thing is that you clean yourself when you go to the bathroom with one hand and use in eating and writing a different hand. That's the point. So if you use your right hand to eat and write, then clean yourself with the left hand. If you use your left hand to eat and write, then use the right hand to clean yourself. The other hadith would come and say, no. Teach yourself to write with the right hand and teach yourself to eat with the right hand. And so in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and so on, this, this, is a, uh, this is a big issue because you have kids that are left-handed. And then the, the Ministry of Education said you must force them to use the right hand. They, they, have, to be, they have to be compelled to use the right hand. That's, that's a typical Al-Hadith example. Same, for example, about um, eating honey. Believe it or not, some people are allergic to honey. So the Usulis would come and say, well, it doesn't apply to you. When, it, when, it, when the Quran says the honey, there is cure in honey for people, that doesn't apply to you. It, obviously, to you it's not a cure, to you it's a disease. The Al-Hadith would come and say, you, you have to teach yourself to enjoy honey. And that's, I'm talking about fatawa issues. You know, you just simply, then the problem is in you, in your level of piety, you're weak, and so on and so forth. This honey, right hand, left hand, uh, drinking, sitting or standing up. I mean, there have been sort of situations where uh, people have come and said, you know, it's not feasible for us to drink on three gulps. You're supposed to drink your glass of water in three gulps, or juice, or whatever. So, okay, there's a problem here. How about coffee? You know, it's boiling hot. And if you want to finish the glass in three, three sips, you'll burn yourself. So, she, this woman used to choke. She came in and she said, you know, I, I choke. Every time I try to do this, I, I have to sip water. So, I don't remember the name of the sheikh she asked from Al-Hadith. And he, he, he basically said, then you have to teach yourself to drink your three gulps. The problem is you. The, the Usuli said, well, this does, that means the, the advice to drink is three gulps doesn't apply to you. And then the Usuli raised that point about, how about if you drink hot tea? Do you have to drink it at three gulps? And it reached the Ahl al-Hadith person. So he said, then your obligation is to drink an amount small enough to be able to be finished in three gulps, three sips. 
so that you put enough tea so that you take three sips. You see? So that that sort of shows you the, the, the distinction, the two separate attitudes between the two. No, actually the majority don't say a word about why dinukum and dini. Because you see, it should really be dinun or al-din or dini with ya. But that dini with a kasra is so unusual that the majority don't say a word. And if you go home and look in Tafsir al-Razi and look in uh, Ibn Kathir and look in... Um, I don't know which other people people use around here. Maududi, Sayyid Qutb, you know, you, you won't find a word said about it. But if you go to a mosque and do it, say, why does it say dini, dinukum, and then dini with a kasa, and not a yak, or dinun, or al-din? No, I am willing to bet you no one will know. Some commentators, uh, like Razi, will just tell you all the different opinions, but not really commit himself, except in certain situations. A Razi, but not about Dinukum and Deen, and uh, Tabari will report different views, and Mawardi reports different views. Some Quranic commentators advocate a position, clearly advocate a position, and then it's consistent, and then you can see Okay, so this is the position they began with, so this is the position. So, yeah, some Quran commentators will choose the point of predestination. And that everything is interpreted in light of that. Others will point the, will choose the point that this is really a response to the specific group. And that everything is interpreted in light of that. So, yeah, I mean, the, um, but the, the then the, the the difference is really between those who write Quranic commentator comment commentaries in order to tell you according to their study of the Quran what they understand the verses to mean, and those who write encyclopedias of Quranic commentaries. So their point is really to accumulate or present you with a cumulative um, reports of the, all the different traditions. And that's why you have some, you know, commentaries that are just huge and some very much smaller. Mm, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's really, there is very difficult to translate. I'm not, I'm not sure. Because if it's a way, well, then it should be waliya dinun. And if it's the way, it should be waliya al din. But because it says dini with a kasra, it's it's like you have your way, I have my way, but not my way that I construct. So if I was translating it, I would I would translate it my way, and then I would put it in a footnote because iyat was not used here and a kasra was used instead. Then that means my way, but it's my way which I did not invent. Obviously, there is an individual subjective component because. It's a one-on-one relationship with God. But obviously, it's talking about the separateness between those who engage in the interaction and those who don't. So obviously, there's also an objective component. 
And then the balance of what we study becomes an exploration. What is, to what extent is it objective and to what extent is it subjective? In the sense, and, and you'll be able to look back and say, you know, this was all captured in the, the notion of a sirat. The sirat is a certain way. In this way, I mean, you could go zigzagging. You could go in, in all types of different trails. But there are parameters to that sirat. And that's the objective element. But the varieties of steps that can be taken are many, and that's a subjective element. And in, in certain ways, you won't really have two people that will exactly replicate the same exact steps. If you imagine a very wide road, and you, you have people walk one, one at a time, and you tell them, be, you know, walk the, the way you feel like walking. And, you know, so they stop on the way, they pick a penny here, they, they look at a dead animal there, they do this. Each individual experience will not exactly replicate the exact same steps. I mean, it will be similar, but not the same. We have different ibadah. Okay? And then, let's imagine you pose the question, why? And it comes with the answer, Lakum dinukum wa dini. With the kasra. So then, what do you understand as the point, as the relationship between deen and the ibadah? I mean, it seems that there, there is a relationship in which the deen, and I, deen here is not necessarily just religion, dictates that ibadah. But because of the, 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 the kasra element, it seems it's not dictated simply by illegal, in a legal sense. So it is not formal worship. I mean, it's not just simply the act of salah, let's say. Because there is a personal subjective element. But not the yak. Not the yak. So again, it's my way. But it's a, a very strange my way because it is non-possessive. Imagine if in English we can use the my without the possessive. Be pretty, be pretty strange. It is distinct, but although it's mine, so that's subjective, I don't construct. So, and that's the objective element. I mean, it seems, the, the very word seems to imply subjective and objective at the same time. That's what's fascinating about it. While the inukum was entirely subjective. And we're not talking about just subjective, because subjective, objective, I mean, it, it, because you could have your dinukum, but it'd be, sub, it'd be very objective, right? I mean, if I wake up every morning and I kill a cat, that's not necessarily subjective. It's objective. Why do I do it? Because I was taught by my father that this brings good luck. It's, that's not necessarily subjective. It's objective. But it's fabricated. It's invented. It has no base. Or at least that's what the Quran is saying. That it is, it is yours in a, in a, in a very 
mundane sense. It's like you invented this. It's as if saying, well, yours in the sense that it's your invention, your fabrication. While mine in the sense that I didn't invent, I didn't fabricate. Yeah, actually, several have made that point that dinukum, it's, it's what you engage in in the absence of, of consciousness. In other words, you just do it. You don't have a system of thought about it. While mine is something that is, is adopted through consciousness. I mean, all of that is, is yeah, it's connoted, implied. In the contrast between dinukum and dini with the kasra. 